our Bibles and let's go to the book of Mark chapter number 16 this morning. Mark chapter 16 and we'll begin reading in verse number 9 and we'll read down through the end of the chapter. Mark 16, 9 through 20. And if you found your place, let's stand together as we read. Again, reading in verse number 9. Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that he had been with him, that told him that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. And after that he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue, neither believed they them. Afterwards he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you that you would take uh, what is said this morning, that you would allow it to be uh, resonate in our hearts. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see the truth of the text this morning. Uh, I pray, Father, that you'd help us to be pursuers of truth. And Lord, I pray, Father, that as we guide our, our, our thoughts this morning, that Lord, you'd help us to stay clear and on task. Or may we leave here uh, in love with your word more than when we came. And in the precious name we pray it all. Amen. You can be seated there. <clears throat> so this will be um, our, our last sermon in the book of Mark. As we've been going through this series for uh, a little over two and a half years now. And I thought that's interesting that it's taken us two and a half years to go through the book of Mark, and it's only a story that covers three and a half years, so we, we might could have stretched it out for another year and been the same length of time. But um, here we are at the end of it, and uh, the, the story of Mark is so rich with detail and points us to the Lord, the risen Lord. And last week we ended with the resurrection and we covered the details of the cross, the crucifixion, the trial, his burial, his resurrection. And we see the Lord risen. And then now we come to these last verses in our text. Now, I want to come to you this morning because I feel like it's my responsibility as a, a pastor to be very transparent with you, not only about what I believe the text is applying to us, but where we get the text of Scripture from. And that we have a reliable text in our hand. Now let me say this, and I think you'll say a hearty amen to this. The Bible is the Word of God. 
and it is without error, and we can hold on to the Word of God and trust the Word of God. Um, but the means by which the Word of God comes to us is an interesting means, and it's a powerful, really, affirmation that what we hold in our hands is truly the Word of God. Um, it's important to know that the text you hold in your hands this morning, regardless of the translation that you have, is a translation of a text that is over 2,000 years old. And we have a 2,000-year-old text in our hand that has been translated into our language and thankfully into many languages around the world. And even today is being translated into languages that it's yet to be put, placed into. And there are people doing the faithful work of translating the Word of God into other languages. Um, the King James translators and their uh, opening statement uh, to the reader, they make this statement and they liken translation. Translation means to crack the shell so that you can get to the meat that is on the inside. It's to break open the nuts so you can get to the inside and know what it says and have the, the meat that you need to eat. And this is what we do with translation. This is the work of translation. Um, God has given his word by inspiration. The word inspiration in 2 Timothy 3.16 literally means God breathed out his words. He breathed his word. And when we say God breathed his word, we don't believe that God gave the thoughts to the writers. And then they begin to pin down uh, their assimilation of those thoughts or a summary of those thoughts. No, we believe that God moved upon the writers and they pinned the very word of God. And they did so, which is amazing to us, without losing their personal style or personality. Is that Peter wrote, and you can read Peter's writing and know it's different than Paul's. As a matter of fact, Peter in one place says, hey, Paul's writings are hard to be understood. Peter says that about Paul. And we know if you've read Ephesians or Romans, you know at times it's hard to be understood. It takes some thinking to get into the text. And yet these men wrote with their own style, and yet each man writing with his own style, writing with his own personality, is writing the very words of God. And so we, don't, we believe the term we would use for that is the verbal inspiration of Scripture. We believe in the verbal inspiration that God gave the very words, and we hold the word of God in our hand. Now, I bring all that up is because depending on the translation you hold in your lap this morning, there would call into question the verses we read as to whether or not they should be included as Holy Scripture or not. Um, how many of you this morning, you've got a copy of the King James with you? Several of you do. Um, and how many of you, does anybody here have a copy of, of the Bible that doesn't include these verses? You're just looking at your page and you've got a blank spot. Anybody like that? All right, that means you all got a good translation. Um, so uh, the, uh, there's only a few translations that leave them out completely. Most translations come in and they'll just put a footnote. And I have a copy of the ESV here with me this morning. And at the beginning of this text, it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 9 through 20. And what is that to do? Is that to undermine our faith in the validity of God's word? Well, my goodness, if we can't trust this, can we trust any of it? That's not by any means what that is to do. As a matter of fact, that is a statement of honesty about what lies behind the text. And it's a, a, just a clear and honest statement. And it goes back to how we get the word of God in the first place. 
When these men were taking trans, these, these copies of the word of God and sending it out, if I were to break you up into four churches, so we got church A, B, C, and D here this morning, and Paul wrote a letter, let's say he wrote a letter over here to church D, and he gave you a letter, then your church would have the motive and a responsibility to send that letter out. And so what you would do is you would gather somebody from your congregation who is able to write, and not everybody would be able to write or read, and you would gather somebody from your congregation who is able to write or read. Sometimes it would be a very well-educated person. Sometimes it might be a slave who was trained in reading and writing that was placed in responsibility to do that. And he would take Paul's letter and he would sit down next to that by candlelight or some kind of, uh, of lighting. And he would write out by longhand the letter that Paul had sent. And then they would take that letter and send it off to this church. This church would get the letter, and Church C has the letter, and you're reading it and expounding on it in your church, but you need to send it on, but you don't want to send your only copy, and so you make a couple of copies, and you send them off to another church, and then you get a copy, and you make a few copies and send them out, and then you get a copy, and you guys make some copies and send them out, and those copies begin to spread all over the known world, and these are copies of copies of copies of copies. And many would come to the word of God and say, well, man, with all of those copies in those primitive settings, there's got to be a lot of errors in your Bible. There's got to be a lot of mistakes. And man, all of this is a mess. And so how in the world are you going to be able to do that? Now, here's what I want you to see first off is that no one person held on to the scripture. Now, this is an important point because let's just say, for instance, this morning that, you know, I looked down and I said, uh, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to preserve the Bible. Lewis, you're in charge of making sure the Bible doesn't get corrupted. And so we give it to Lewis to do that. And so he forms a group of men around him who protect the Bible and only they have the final authority of what it says. Well, in that scenario, all we have to do is cast doubt upon that one institution and the whole is undermined. And by the way, that is a largely what was attempted to happen was one church to grab a hold of Scripture. But it couldn't happen because of all the copies that were spread out through the world. No one church could grab a hold of it and control it. And so that's not what we have. What we have today is we have a plethora of copies of Greek manuscripts that are spread all over the world. 5,000 plus manuscripts. 25,000 manuscripts, including the other languages in early centuries that were used, and we can reference those and compare those translations to the Greek and to our translation, and we can stand back and look at all of that and say, we have the Word of God. We have what Paul wrote, and we can rest confidently upon that. You see, the manuscripts are not all complete, and they do all contain mistakes. And this is what causes people to say, see, you can't trust your Bible. It has mistakes in it. And I would say that's a problem. Now, in the first service this morning, I came in and I gave several people um, a copy of Psalms 23. And I, I just gave them a copy and I told them to tear it up. And so they did this to Psalms 23. And there are significant pieces of Psalms 23 missing. Yea, though I walk, valley, death, evil. I mean, there's not a whole, all the hopes taken out of that verse. It's all gone. Um, so it's, it's just valley, death, evil, right? There's all you got left in that verse. And uh, so they tore some holes in this. And, and so when we look at this, people would say, well, see, that manuscript is not complete. It doesn't contain all that was said there. How can you even know what God intended to say? Well, that's the benefit is then we don't just have one manuscript. 
We have 5,000 plus manuscripts. And so the work of comparing those manuscripts together begins. And they begin to take the manuscripts and they lay one over the other. And now what do we have? We have a far more complete picture. And then we take another and we lay it over and we lay another. And I've only taken three of the 20 copies that we've done here. And now we have a complete understanding of what was said with no holes in it. Now, if I take all 20 of these and put them together and I show you what they all say, there's no holes in what's being said. As a matter of fact, we even, even in this scenario, and here's what you need to understand, this scenario, the corruption was done with bias. There was an attempt to remove what was said from the text. But all of the errors that we see, the majority of the errors were not done from bias. They were done from a genuine heart to want to copy it down. And so they begin to copy it down, and, and sometimes they would reverse word order. You've never done that, I'm sure, when you're writing something. And they reverse word order. Um, and we're, let's just be thankful that they didn't do text to, uh, speech to text back then, right? Because then we would have been a real mess on what it said. But they copied it down. They reversed word order. They left out punctuations and things of that nature. And we said, well, see, we can't even know what it says. That's not true because God has done not only the inspiration of his word, but he's done the preservation of his word. And why were so many of these preserved? Because the people who were using it valued it. It was important to them, and they wanted to make sure it was handed down from generation to generation. And they were following Paul's admonition that we want to hold the word of God, and we want to hand it on to faithful men who are able to teach others also. And so they handed it down. And see, we come to this, and this is something important to remember, is that God doesn't work because man is perfect. He works through man's weaknesses to accomplish his perfect plan. And so I would argue this morning that the, the variations that we find in the manuscript evidence are evidence that man is weak, but God superintends over the work of man. And he accomplishes his work anyway. And so we can stand upon that. The manuscripts that we see um, are the accuracy of our Bible is not undermined by these, but is reinforced by the majority and the abundance of the textual evidence that we have been given. Um, as a matter of fact, Homer, Homer's Iliad, and I'll just use it for one illustration, and most of you had to read some of that in school, but Homer's Iliad, um, we, uh, up until recent days, we only had about 650 copies of that uh, manuscript evidence of what it said. Recently, we've uncovered some more of those. There's about 1,700 of those. And it's the closest work of antiquity with the manuscript evidence behind it to the New Testament. The New Testament has an abundance of manuscript evidence that we can look at and compare and know what it says. So by comparing the manuscripts, this allows the errors to be seen and to be corrected. And God is working through the weakness of man to do his perfect work. And here's the thing, too. When we come to these, they say, well, hold on a second now, Pastor. This, this thing right here says that some of the older manuscripts don't include it. And the reason that is in there is a statement of honesty. Because we found some older manuscripts, the majority of manuscripts include this. All the way back to 1st and 2nd century, the majority of manuscripts include it. But we found some older, very complete manuscripts that says it's not there. And so there's a question mark. It's just not in the oldest ones that we have. And so we just want to be honest with you and say, here you go. What do you have? Now, what, what can we draw from that? The primary reason is the oldest do not include this manuscript, and it doesn't contain this ending. However, the majority of manuscripts do use this, and the, uh, the events of this text are also found in other places in Scripture. 
So every event that we find here that is described for us is described in greater detail in another place. But here's the thing I want you to see. No place in all of the New Testament where there is even a question about whether it should be included or not, or the word order should be changed. Not one place, and I'm going to read this statement, no Christian doctrine depends on any part where there is any residual uncertainty. Not one bit. No place in Scripture are you going to come to a place and say, well, there, see, Jesus isn't the Son of God. Not even in question. Because the whole of Scripture compared together underlines it. And you and I, here's the thing this morning. We don't just have a 400-year-old text tradition, which would go back to the King James that I have loved and preached for all these years. We don't have a 400-year-old tradition. We have a 2,000-year-old tradition that is an ancient text that is supported by the evidence. And when we open the Word of God, we can say, this is the Word of God, and we can rely upon it. Now, In this text this morning, what I would like to do is in light of the fact that the majority of manuscripts do have this included, and these events are found in other Gospels, I want to examine the account together and see what it would instruct us on. And so let's see what it has to say to us this morning. So we've walked through the book of Mark, and we've done so at a uh, kind of a snail's pace for a few years now. And here we are, the crucifixion has taken place, the resurrection has taken place, Three and a half years of ministry have passed. He's about to ascend to heaven, and what instruction will he leave for us? Well, the structure of our text this morning that we've read already is almost like snapshots of several events. They're just little windows into events that happen, and they're designed to quickly wrap up the narrative and to get the players off the stage. And so we want to state what happened and move on. We got some place to go, and it's very quick in the way they move through this. Mary, Jesus appears to Mary, and she goes with the message, and they don't believe her. He appears to the two on the road to Emmaus. They go back, and they don't believe him. He appears to the 11. Jesus shows up in their midst, and they don't believe him. And then he gives, in verse number 15, the great commission, and he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then he promises great protection to them. He said, "Uh, you're going to be able to do great signs and wonders, and I'll protect you as you go. And then we see his ascension into heaven, and then when we come to the very last verse, you could argue that verse 20 is literally the summation of the entire book of Acts in one verse. And here's what it says. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following him. Amen. And so they went and they did the work of the gospel. So let me, let me give us a couple of thoughts this morning. What is not said in this text? Now, if you were reading with us carefully, you might see a couple of things in this that kind of raise your antennas a little bit. Um, And uh, we look at this first one this morning. What is not being taught in this text? It's not being taught to us that baptism is necessary for salvation. That is not what's being taught. Let's look at what he says in verse number 15. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Now, if we stop... At the semicolon, what would be your conclusion? You must be baptized to be saved. And if this were the only verse in Scripture that we had to compare with, then we would be in that conclusion as well. But the balance of the verse says this, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And so the emphasis here is not on baptism, but on believing. 
He that believeth is saved, and he that believeth and is baptized is saved. And what it shows is a very clear connection between believers following in baptism, but then also a statement that belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, or rather a lack thereof, is what condemns us to his judgment. It is only him. And so baptism obviously could refer to being placed into Christ, though I think he's referring to water baptism here. Someone said this to me years ago. They said, here's what we're saying. He that gets on the bus and finds a seat will go to Chicago. But if you don't get on the bus, you're not going to Chicago. And the concept, maybe that's a bit simplistic, but the concept is the primary thing is you've got to be in Christ. You've got to believe. Now, baptism should follow for faithful believers. It would be just a natural thing that we identify with Christ, but baptism is not what saves. Now, I believe from this text we can affirm that it's not teaching for salvation through baptism, but we don't just rely upon any one text to find our doctrine. We look at all of the scripture and compare scripture with scripture, and so that doctrine of baptism being the means about salvation doesn't align with the balance of scripture. So when we look at the rest of the scripture, and I think one of the uh, kind of the mic drop verses in scripture, if you would allow me to use that term, is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17. Go there with me if you would uh, very quickly this morning. 1 Corinthians 1, 17. The apostle Paul is dealing with a church that is very much man-centered. They're going back and forth and even boasting in who baptized them. And he asked the question in verse 13. He said, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He said, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest they should say I had baptized in my own name. He said, I baptize also the house of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptize any other. Now look at verse number 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. So the Apostle Paul makes a very clear distinction between baptizing and preaching the gospel. They are not the same thing. Baptism is a picture of the gospel, but the gospel is very clearly, according to 1 Corinthians 15, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we could go to other passages of Scripture, and we could look at this very clearly, but how do we determine any time we come to a text that might seem to think, well, man, that seems like it's teaching something I didn't know. Let me say this to you. First off, let's make the main things the plain things of Scripture. What does the scripture plainly say? And it plainly says here that if you do not believe, you will be damned. Paul plainly says that he came not to baptize, but to preach the gospel and let the gospel do his work. He declares the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, I declare unto you the gospel. Now, if somebody says, I declare unto you the gospel and baptism was to be included with the gospel, you think he would mention it. And yet he does not. He said Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. He was buried and he rose again. And this morning, our faith is in the finished work of Jesus Christ, not a work of righteousness that we can do. And we rest in that this morning. So what is not in the Scripture? It's not teaching that baptism is necessary for salvation. What else is not said this morning? It is not saying, and you'll be very glad to hear this, that if you really believe, you'll handle snakes. Anybody here like snakes? Yeah, okay. I, that's, I don't like snakes. Um, the only, only good snake is a dead snake. That's, 
they don't care nothing for snakes, all right? And I know God made them and all that, but they're cursed. So, um, so, so I, don't, I don't like snakes. But here in this text, look if you would in verse number 17, and he says, And these signs shall follow them that believe, in, the na- in, thy name, they, in my name, rather, they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them, and they shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. And so we see these evidences here, he's saying, that will follow those that believe. Now, the first thing I want you to see here is he doesn't say this. Now, read the text with me again in verse 17. And these signs shall those that believe follow. No, we're not following after these signs. These signs would follow those who believe. And here he says at the very end again that, he, that the Lord working with them, verse 20, confirming the word with signs following. Amen. God uses signs and wonders to confirm his word, not to puff men up. Never in scripture do we see men taking a platform and showing off their power. And so if we look at this, we say, well, should we be handling serpents? Now, I'm, I'm sad to report that some actually believe that to prove their faith, they have to handle serpents and drink poisons. And in doing this, there's been sects of Christianity through the history of the church that have tried to do this in order to prove their faith. And, and their argument is, well, if it kills me, I didn't have enough faith or there was sin in my life. And that's a fool's errand. There's no place in Scripture that we're called to do this kind of nonsense. Now, what do we do see about these is that all who believe in the text here, uh, those who believe the confirmation of the message was evidenced by the signs. That God comes in and what does he do? He pours out his spirit in the book of Acts and those that were under that pouring out of his spirit began to speak in tongues and God confirmed his word. And we see Paul laying hands on the sick and they're healed. We see Peter raising up a lame man and he walks. We see even Eutychus who fell out the window and was killed. Paul raised him up to life again and he lives. And we see this happening. But that does not mean that we're to start a healing ministry. That does not mean, as a matter of fact, Paul prayed and sent out handkerchiefs. And he did so around the area. And they laid the handkerchiefs on sick folks, and they were healed. So should we start a handkerchief ministry? No. Because what we have is apostolic signs confirming the apostolic message as the Lord who commissioned the apostles would do. He said he would do. And he's confirming their message, and we see God doing that. What do we see with Moses? We go all the way back to Moses' day. God's word comes to Moses. Go to Pharaoh. Tell him, let my people go. Go tell the people, leave Egypt, come out. And Moses said, hey, here's the deal. I don't think they're going to believe me. And what does God give him? Signs. He gives him a sign. Take your hand, put it inside your jacket, pull it out, it's covered with leprosy. Put it back in, he puts it back in his robe, he pulls it out, it's now healed. He said, take your staff and throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground and it becomes a serpent. And he says, pick it up by the tail and he picks it up and it becomes a staff again. And here's the thing that's important. Those signs were used before Pharaoh, but they were given to Moses for the people of Israel. To confirm that he truly had a message from God. And so we don't have a healing ministry that walks around and promotes men. And says here's what we can do. We have the power to heal. And by the way, anytime a man would 
promote himself to be a healer of the sick, to heap wealth and attention to himself, he is anti-gospel, not gospel. Never is God going to share his glory with men. And you listen to me well. Now, let me make something very clear. I believe God is a powerful God. And I believe this morning that God can heal, and he does heal, and I believe God is a healing God. I believe the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man and woman availeth much. And I believe when our brothers and sisters are sick and they're in a bad way, we can gather around them, we can place our hands on them, we can hold them up in prayer, and God in his providence will heal them or choose not to heal them, and we can rejoice in that. And here's the thing, I used to struggle with this. As a young pastor, I would go into the room of someone who was clearly at death's doorstep. The hours were very short, and I, I remember Brother Wendell Branson in particular, and Allie, you went to visit with me that very night. And we went into his room, and he had suffered with cancer for many years, and he lay there, and the rattle was in his chest, and we knew the hours were short. How do you pray at that moment? Can we pray with any boldness for healing? Can we pray with any comfort for healing in that hour? Would it not seem empty? Would it not be setting God up for failure in that moment? Kind of an arrogant thought, but it's what I thought. And ultimately, the resurrection is what gave me hope. Because here's the thing. Whether God heals them on this side or the next, he's going to heal them. And so I can pray for healing, you can pray for healing, no matter how hopeless it is, because God, through the power of the resurrection, has promised that everyone who believes will not only have a hope of heaven, but you will be healed of all sickness and pain, and death will have no power over you. And we will have a new body, we will be glorified, this corruptible will put on incorruption, and so we can pray boldly for them, God, heal them. If it be your will, heal them now, and we believe that God can. If it not be your will, we know that you will heal them then and we rejoice in that and we can pray boldly there. And so we pray boldly for healing. We pray boldly for God to do that work. Now, these would come and we look at the New Testament apostles and those that were under their ministry were healing, speaking in tongues, uh, casting out demons, drinking in poison, handling serpents. The drinking of poison is the only one we don't have any attestment to in the New Testament. We see Paul being bit with a serpent. It doesn't kill him. And again, these signs served to confirm the word they were preaching. All of these prophecies are a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. So with the exception of drinking of poison, all these signs followed the apostles in their ministry, confirming and validating their office, not glorifying men. So then I believe that these signs were signs to the Jewish people till the close of the canon of Scripture, there were supernatural signs that have been given. Supernatural protection has been promised. And let me make something extremely clear here. I believe in God's providence in each person's life. God is not spinning things, winding things up, and turning it loose. He's in control. And here's what I want to say to you. We are on mission today with the gospel, and you are invincible until God is done with you. We have the promise of protection as we go, and he will protect us until the day that it's time for us to leave. The Apostle Paul survived how many perils? And then the day came where his ministry was over, and Paul said, I've run my race, I've finished my course, the time of my departure is at hand. 
and he was sacrificed and martyred for the cause of Christ. But he was invincible until his day came. God's divine protection is given, not only supernatural protection, but supernatural communication we've been commanded. We have the promise in Matthew, lo, I am with you always, even into the end of the world. And so those are what are not taught. Now what is is, is taught? And I am five minutes behind where I was at nine o'clock. You guys don't listen as fast. That's the problem, I think. Here's what is taught, all right? Here's what is taught. It's a clear evidence of a bodily resurrection of Christ. We see clear evidence that Christ raised from the dead. He, he, we see his reminder of the appearances to Mary, the appearance of the two on the road to Emmaus. And what does he do on the road to Emmaus, by the way, is he points them back to the Old Testament. And by the way, if Jesus was using the word of God to confirm his ministry, maybe we shouldn't rely on experience to confirm his ministry. Maybe we should follow his plan and use the word of God to confirm the ministry of Jesus Christ. So his discourse with the two on the road to Emmaus, his direct appearance to the 11, we see this happen. And what do we see in summary of all of this? We see a physical body yet glorified and resurrected. And this is interesting to me because the Bible tells us that he is the first fruits of the resurrection. Now, if he is the first fruits of the resurrection, then it bears to, to follow that you and I will be like him. As a matter of fact, John tells us, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. We are going to be like him. And so what was he like? And, and I'll be honest with you, and I've, I've shared this with you a dozen times, but if heaven is grown people wearing oversized diapers, floating on clouds, playing instruments we don't know how to play, then don't sign me up for that. I don't want an eternity like that. I, that doesn't thrill me at all. And by the way, this Hollywood version of, of heaven, of somehow or another we're floating in the clouds, is the farthest thing from what God intended. God came to redeem a fallen world. His redemption was not limited to just you. His redemption applies to this world as well. He's going to make all things new. Now, I don't know if when we get to heaven, if somehow or another there's going to be uh, a sixth sense when we're in that final kingdom and we'll see more and hear more and know. I don't know. But I, I can guarantee you this, we'll at least have the five we have now. We're going to be able to see and hear and taste and smell. And Jesus comes in to their midst and what does he say? Hey, do you have anything to eat? And they give him food to eat. And, it, and Jesus, and there's an interesting story in, in John, at the end of John. Jesus not only eats food, he cooks food. He's preparing food for the apostles while they're out on the boat and they come in and he feeds them. And I think all of those things, the, the enjoyments that we have here are not going to be lessened. We're not going to find ourselves in some kind of cosmic quarantine for eternity. No, no, no. We're going to have, this world is going to be made new. And Jesus started with this paradise of a garden. And we can imagine, maybe we go back in our mind to the Garden of Eden, and we wonder, man, what must it have been like in the Garden of Eden and how perfect it was? But I got news for you. Adam only had a garden. The Bible tells me when it's all said and done, he said, I saw a city coming out of heaven that was adorned as a bridegroom, a bride for her husband coming down, and it's a city that has the glory of God as its light. This is what you and I are going to live in. And not only are we going to have a new earth that we live on, but he's going to dwell with us. And so just as he walked with Adam in the cool of the day, God dwells with us on this new earth. 
And so we have a resurrected body. It's a physical resurrection. God made you a physical and a spiritual being, and for eternity, you will be a physical and spiritual being, and when you're resurrected, it'll be without corruption and without sin, and death will be no more. We can rejoice in that this morning. So not only do we see clear evidence of a bodily resurrection, we see a clear commission to spread the gospel. And Matthew 28 lays it out for us. Here we see in Mark 15, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. This was a call to an active propagation of the gospel, not some kind of passive dissemination. It was active. We ought to go and seek opportunity to proclaim Jesus and look for it. And let me challenge us to pray, God, show me when those opportunities come. God, open my eyes and let me see when I have an opportunity to witness to the person at the dry cleaners or witness to the neighbor. And, and this week we had our neighbor come over and ask us for some help for a, a, a certain thing. And, and he stepped inside the door. We exchanged numbers and we were talking for a little bit. He was telling us, and, and I'm sitting here and my wife comes up being all spiritual and everything, and she's like, can we pray with you before you go? And I'm like, hey, I'll, I'll decide when we're going to pray around here. Don't be showing me up in front of the neighbor. And uh, no, she said, can we? And I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. And God used her to say, hey, here's an opportunity. And we stood there with our neighbor and were able to put my arm around him and pray for our neighbor, looking for an opportunity, looking, saying, God, open my eyes. Help me see the people as eternal beings that are going to spend eternity somewhere and give me the opportunity to just speak a word of gospel witness to them. That Jesus saves. Jesus is the hope. And we can proclaim him. It is an active propagation. Not only that, but it's an open field. The field is open. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And let me make something very clear. God is not wanting us to figure out who will believe and who won't believe. He's not wanting us to spend our time wondering whether this person just go and preach the gospel. Let God be the one that does the work. We're called to sow the seed, not inspect the soil. Just go. Go to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and let God do that work. It's a simple message, method rather. Preach the gospel. Proclaim it. Proclaim it in the way you live. Proclaim it in the words you say. Proclaim it in the way you interact on Facebook and Instagram, and all the other permeations of social media. Proclaim it in the way you talk to family. Proclaim it in the way you talk to coworkers. Proclaim the gospel everywhere we go and in every opportunity. Let me say this, though. It's the saving message that we proclaim. It is the gospel that we proclaim. I grieve that too often we talk more about any number of other subjects than we do the gospel. I am for any number of subjects that we could discuss that would probably help society in one way or another, and we could talk about the needs of this group or the needs of that group or the change that needs to happen in culture or the misunderstanding of our Constitution that seems to be undermined on every turn. And I love to discuss all of those issues of heaven, but here's the thing. I'm bound by one thing, is that I want to keep the main thing that I proclaim, the main thing that I preach is Jesus Christ crucified, buried, risen, and coming again. And all who believe can come into him and be saved. And that's the message we want to preach. We want to keep the gospel forefront. 
And I think too often we can get distracted, even as churches we can get distracted, on what we should be platforming, what should we be talking about, what should we be talking about? Every Sunday we should be talking about Jesus, crucified, buried, risen, and coming again. What should we talk about as we go? Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, risen, and coming again. What should we be preaching when we correct our children? Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, risen, and coming again. Everywhere we go, the gospel must be preached. The gospel is the message of the church. We don't have a second message. And we continue to preach it. So, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preach it, herald it, the good news of Christ, our King, to a lost and a dying world. And so finally, what do we see is a clear endorsement of the work, teachings, and writings of the apostles. Here we see Jesus telling them to go, that he would confirm the word behind them, And what they wrote and what they testified is the very word of God that the church is organized and defined by. We see the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy in the book of Acts as he poured out his spirit upon these men and and women in the upper room. And if we're not careful in our day and age, we tend to demand the spectacular and ignore the miracle of the mundane. We want to see somehow another God do something, wow. But I got news for you. The book I hold in my hand this morning is wow. The word of God is wow. God has confirmed that what he taught through the apostles is the very word of almighty God. And I don't need another experience to confirm it. It's already been confirmed. I don't need another uh, sign or a wonder to confirm it. It's already been confirmed. And here's the thing. I believe God can heal and I rejoice that every time I hear, hey, we prayed for that brother or that sister and they're doing better now or God miraculously healed them or God worked in an incredible way and drew me to him. And I love to hear all those stories. But let me say this, our doctrine is not built upon the experience of anyone or a compilation of anyone. Our doctrine is built upon the apostles' words that they laid out for us in the New Testament that are confirmed by the ministry of Jesus Christ himself. And here's the thing, if God never did another spectacular thing that made us go, wow, this book is sufficient. And we can rest in it. We can proclaim it. And here's the reality, we can spend the next 25 or 30 years just unpacking what we have from God. He's closed his canon, he's given his word, and he's given us the commission. The same that you've received of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who are able to teach others also. And so the work goes forward. We cannot preach what we have seen, but what they have recorded for us, and we proclaim it as the word of God. And we go boldly in that proclamation. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for the sufficiency of your word. Lord, I pray, Father, that, Lord, I know we covered a lot of ground this morning. Lord, I pray, Father, that though there be one here that does not know you, they've never put their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that this morning they would come to know you as their Savior. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would stir a work inside of us. Give us a heart to know you and to know you through the pages of your word. And Lord, that would be our heart this morning. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would help this to sink down into our ears. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it all. Would you stand with me this morning?